I'm Pete Sutterling, and welcome to the Zero Prime Podcast, where we explore the early stories of top startups via the experiences of their engineer founders. This week on the show, I chat with Joey Gonzalez. Joey is a professor in the electrical engineering and computer science department at UC Berkeley. He's also a founding member of the UC Berkeley RISE Lab, where he studies the design of real-time, intelligent, secure, and explainable systems. Most recently, he's the co-founder of a new company called Aqueduct, which is helping the world take data science into production systems. So let's dive right into our chat. Here today with Joey Gonzalez, who's a longtime researcher and academic in the machine learning space. And recently, Joey's become a full professor of computer science at UC Berkeley, and he's very excited about that. But as I was debating and thinking of where we could start the, the conversation and the things that we could t- touch on, I was overwhelmed with all the different contributions that Joey's made to the field of machine learning over the years. We could talk about how he's a founding member of the RISE Lab, and he's worked on projects like Clipper and Graph Lab, which actually became a company, Turi, that exited to Apple. We could talk about GraphX, which now is a part of the Spark platform. Or we could talk about the fact that he's the co-founder and VP product at a new company called Aqueduct that he's recently launched, which I'm excited to get into with him later on in the show. But where I want to start is Joy recently penned a very interesting blog post called How Machine Learning Became Useful which is a tour of the last 10 plus years of his research in the machine learning world. And I found it very inspiring and interesting as it sort of maps a very interesting narrative arc of the machine learning space over time. So I think that's as good of a place to start as any, Joey. So I wanted to welcome you to the show and and tell, tell us about the blog post that you recently wrote. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I guess we, we launched a company. We were trying to tell our story. And, and I guess I had just finished submitting my tenure case. So I got tenure at Berkeley. It's been a very exciting year. It's been a, a long time to, to get here. And I had a chance to think about that time and some of the research I did. Um, and so in that blog post, we kind of reflected on maybe the past eight years of work we've been doing kind of with the beginning of thinking about prediction serving systems to, to where we are today. And maybe to spoil the, the story for the blog that I encourage people to take, to take a look, but we started with this idea of how to solve the problems of prediction serving that were, you know, plaguing the, the big tech giants, the world, how to make things, make decisions in real time. And in some ways, departing from what the most of the machine learning and systems community w- was thinking about at the time, which was how do I train a big model? We're like, well, what if you train the big model? What's the next big problem? So you're going to make decisions in real time. You probably want to collect feedback. And so we, we, we embarked on a basically eight-year agenda thinking about those kinds of technologies. We're starting with a system, you know, Velox, to, to, to be able to personalize models in, in real time, and then moving more towards this kind of decentralized microservice architecture of prediction serving systems of Clipper, really focusing on bringing down latency for you know, state-of-the-art deep learning models. And then we launched a company and said, hey, who wants to use this technology? And you know, the open source projects had a lot of excitement, but when we went to speak to a lot of data science teams, they're like, well, yeah, that's really exciting. But today, we just want to be able to make basic predictions on data in our data warehouse. And actually, we don't even want to serve it in real time. We just want to put it back in the data warehouse um, because we found that putting it there is where most people can consume predictions today without changing their technology stack, without having to learn how to use microservice architectures. We just want to deliver reliably predictions in our warehouse, monitor those things, make sure they have the right inputs and outputs. And that, that is the technology we need today. And, and, and sadly, you know, thanks to our research, the whole world had built prediction serving around kind of this microservice architecture. And these people are having to learn how to incorporate REST endpoints into what was really basic data processing workflows that really just needed better tooling for basic data processing, monitoring. But you know, again, with the aspirations that someday, you know, maybe they do want to be able to support real time. And so, you know, in that blog, we got to reflect on the, the great research we did 
And then the realization of we solved the problems that, you know, only a small fraction of the technology companies the world have today. Hopefully, you know, in, in five, 10 years, that will be the problems everyone has because we'll integrate machine learning to everything. And it'll be real time. But today we, we're actually at a, at a world where data is, you know, the king. Integrating machine learning into just the pure data pipeline is really the, the key challenge. I love how you summarized that. And you also sort of got to the end of the story. And I think we'll we'll chat about the new company that you started, Aqueduct, and, and some of those insights a little bit later in our chat. But let's linger a little bit on what you thought the world needed five or six or eight or 10 years ago. And because I think that a lot of people, a lot of companies who are in their own instances of this machine learning maturity model and experience and journey on their own, they might still be stuck in in certain parts that have become clear to you in hindsight, but there's still a lot of like lingo and sort of embedded knowledge in the machine learning community about how prediction systems are built and deployed. And I wonder if um, we can, you know, free people from from some of the tyranny of those ideas if we chat about them a little bit more in depth. That's 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 a great idea. Um, yeah. So when we think of, of machine learning, in fact, when we think of it academically, we focus on training. And a lot of the technology around machine learning today has been focused around tools to train better, bigger models. When we think of training, a lot of that comes down to in real world settings getting good data, getting good features, getting things to describe users if you're trying to make decisions about users or products or, or supply chains is having the right data to train the model. But then critically, it's that same right data that we need to make predictions. And so when we start at the very basic pieces of prediction, prediction serving, you assume we've built a model. And in fact, again, the technology today have made it so building models is almost too easy. We have you know thousands of archive papers a week, <laughs> you know, maybe a month. And the reason why is it's too easy to build models today. And that's a good thing. So we had a lot enough innovation that we can make models. So you've got a model to make a prediction. What do you need? You need your model. And you need your inputs and outputs. As a machine learning person, that's simple. I'll build a, a Flask server or you know some some service, and I'll put my model in that service, and then inputs will come and predictions will be made, and then I'll return those as outputs. And when we started the research, that is kind of where we started. So how do you make that process fast? There are big questions at that point in time. If that model is you know a big neural network, how should we choose to feed it data to make you know decisions quickly? And how do we keep costs down? If you have a lot of stuff coming in and out of your model, and you're running these big neural networks, it's expensive. So the early work was really focused on making these things fast, making them cost effective, and really just this kind of very simple input output model. If you're at a company today, you're like, well, come on, Joey, that's not how it really works. Those inputs are actually a you know, whole chain of operations that need to take place to get to the right inputs. It's not a user ID comes in and model goes, thank you, user ID. Here's your prediction. Um, it goes, user ID, well, tell me more about that user. So we need to get the, the features for it. The world of feature store technologies, which we've you know, launched a whole nother research agenda around, is trying to answer that question of when a user ID comes in, how do I find the right data to make decisions in real time? Many companies, they are actually not really needing to make decisions in real time. They're making decisions hourly. They're making decisions daily. In that case, maybe that user ID is really, you know, some sequence of joins in the data warehouse that, you know, goes from user ID to a rich set of features that will then be fed into the model. And so that whole pre-processing step is pretty critical. Where things fail is not typically in the model at all, but in, in those feature pre-processing steps. When a brilliant data engineer goes in and cleans up the schema, the schema is cleaner, but the assumptions made to train the model are no longer true. So you have to recognize, hey, they've changed the formats, the organization of data. They've maybe changed the currency units. And so now we have to rethink the interaction between the model and that featureization process. And it's that kind of workflow, that interaction between the inputs and the model that you know is critical to track and manage when we really think about production inference today. It's not to say that there isn't a whole world of, of live serving. We, sh we should you know not discount that. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on. Our research wasn't meaningless. We, you know, people need those technologies. 
It's just that there's a lot of kind of unserved use cases that are more traditional, just batch data processing with machine learning in the middle. And I feel like if I was to superimpose what you just said over, you know, the arc of, of Joey's profile, um, you were probably discovering some of those insights around the Turi days and then the Clipper days, because you came to Data Council in 2017 or 18, and we're talking about Clipper. And, and just the notion that you had sort of a language around the correct abstractions of what real world machine learning looked like was refreshing to us in our community. And I, But I feel like those were hard fought truths that appear very simple at the end of the road, but probably there's lots of like, you know, blood in the streets to get to those insights. Um, and probably during the days of of Turi, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, a challenging journey. When again, when we launched Turi, which is a while back, in fact, it was originally called GraphLab based on our research on graph processing systems. But as we went out and you know talked again at that point in time to real data scientists, their problems were just data. How do we clean data? How do we prep data? You know, it's nice to have useful models. And Turi, we had very sophisticated algorithms and really cool models. But we ended up having to innovate on very basic data processing tools. We developed something called the S-Frame. One of my colleagues is a brilliant piece of technology. It's basically a data frame that ran efficiently on disk. So Turi had to fight how to get to the data, how to clean the data, how to operate on the data, that featureization process, and making that a critical step, both in training and in inference. With Turi, we were at the very beginning of building prediction serving systems. There weren't competing technologies at the time. I think Algorithmia had just launched, um, but was really focused on, we're going to be the Python for the cloud which was actually a pretty good idea at the time. And I think, you know, over time they pivoted in the direction of prediction serving because if you're running Python functions in the cloud, it's a pretty reasonable chance it's part of some machine learning workflow. But when we launched a prediction serving work, it wasn't clear what the vocabulary should be. Do you serve a model? Do you create a REST endpoint? Is the endpoint an abstraction for a prediction task? And then you could plug in many different models. In fact, that was one of the things we pushed pretty hard in the early days of Turi is like, you know, maybe we need an abstraction layer for the kind of microservice architecture. That you would request, you know, I want an ads prediction or I want a supply chain prediction. And then many models could be plugged in behind the scene to support that. And today that kind of lives in the endpoint architectures of most of the live prediction serving technologies. But that was an early, early effort. Uh, to define the space. What's your thinking on this split? Because you've mentioned that even though you were going for live prediction serving, many most companies didn't need that. I've heard stories from folks in our community that even at a company like Apple today, which you still might have some knowledge of because you, you know, you required by Behemoth, that there is still sort of a high place or a standard of we shoot to have all models serve real-time inference and sort of be powered by real-time data. And that's always our goal. In some cases, we can't achieve that, and so we sort of step down into batch. But um, it seems like a company like Apple has actually made a world-class effort to keep things real-time as much as possible. W would you say that that's, a, that that's the, like, the culture there, and how is that sort of manifested in some of the technical decisions they've made? And is that realistic, I guess, it would, would be another flavor of that, that question. It's a good question. One of the challenges, I guess, with Apple is that what happens at Apple stays at Apple. Maybe actually following that thought, one of the things that Apple has done, which I think is an emerging trend more and more in prediction technologies, is they have pushed a lot of that real-time prediction as far to the edge as possible. And there's been a lot of innovation both on silicon compilation technologies to make it so that prediction, when possible, can run outside of the cloud, but on your device and often in real time. They do actually have some batch inference that runs on device as well for things like image tagging. You can observe that when you update your, your computer as it slows down to do some image processing, new iPhoto images. This idea, this philosophy of real-time serving is pervasive in the, the big technology world with good reasons. Companies that have brought machine learning into every process and into the kind of the core parts of every process. You click on a, a website, you see the next content on that page is mediated through machine learning. It's being 
learning techniques are being used to, to define every step of your interaction with the business. Companies have gotten there, have been able to benefit from those advances. Like Google, we talked a lot with Google in, in the development of our early work and everything at Google is powered by machine learning. And they have very tight latency goals, you know, sub seven milliseconds for really state-of-the-art models. And it's challenging. It's, you know, it's the grounds of great research, but it's also not reality for most organizations. If your sales data is coming in weekly, your sales team is making, in fact, we've talked to companies and said, you know what, we don't want predictions faster than a month because it's going to cause people to, to run in circles based on, on the outcomes of the models. We don't actually want to even expose those predictions until the next month. And so in many cases, it's not just a matter of technical maturity, but a matter of kind of business process, organization, the business structure uh, that determines the latencies and the speeds at which we need to make predictions. And so there are good reasons to really think of batch prediction as a, a core part of the prediction ecosystem, maybe even at a big tech company. Well, I think this actually brings us sort of right up to the founding story of Aqueduct, right? And so, as you mentioned earlier, you sort of led a lot of research into real-time systems, prediction systems that perhaps have been adopted by big tech companies for the reasons that you mentioned. But in reality, those may not be the systems that the majority of, of companies really need or, or demand yet today. So talk to us about that insight and, and how that relates to the founding story of Aqueduct. Yeah, the founding story of Aqueduct is great. It's, it's the kind of the convergence of our research and prediction serving technologies and research with colleagues on serverless computing. And for the audience, serverless computing is kind of this trend towards simplifying computing, basically moving the management of infrastructure out of the hands of the application developer and into the hands of something like a cloud provider or a service provider. Philosophically, that's where serverless is heading. If you can imagine machine learning, wouldn't that be great if you didn't have to think about the infrastructure for, for delivering predictions? If you could deliver predictions in real time, scale to thousands of GPUs instantaneously as workload spikes, and then turn them off instantaneously as workload subsides, or subsides and then you're, you're saving you know, significant amounts of money. So yeah, that was the genesis. We could build a company that would really simplify the world of prediction serving and at the same time, make it more cost effective, make it more scalable. And so we, we took that idea based on really cool research and launched a company. And the first thing we did was wise. We talked to as many customers as we could. It's the first time I ever started cold emailing. Uh, so I started cold emailing people on LinkedIn, like, hey, you're doing machine learning production <laughs> at your company. Dangerous skill for an engineer to, to start to dabble in. It is, it is, uh, <laughs> especially also for professors. So anyway, so we, we were doing this, this cold emailing my colleagues and I, and, and having these calls. And time and time again, people are like, yeah, that's really cool stuff. Yeah, right now, we're just trying to get the data out of the data warehouse. We got this DBT pipeline in place. It's doing some data clean. I don't really understand it. There's this Kubernetes infrastructure that we're supposed to be using for our model stuff. I don't quite get that. Uh, SageMakers launched this, uh, this great prediction infrastructure. So we're, we're setting up these REST endpoints and then sending the entire data set to the endpoint once a night. And it's like, and but we're paying for the rest endpoint the rest of the, the time like wow it's crazy so they, they're all trying to adopt the technologies philosophies we were building and in some sense we're going to sell with our new startup but that's not where the most of our potential users our potential customers were all of them said yeah that we love that in the future but we're just not there yet and so in building the company the first thing we had to do is kind of learn the hard lesson that the world is you know where it is today is not where the research as research, I guess, should be mm -hmm. where the research is. And so finding that, that bridge was kind of our goal. And Aqueduct, when we think of a name, is kind of a very simple piece of infrastructure that connects you know, the water of the world to you know, the cities of the world to allow them to flourish. We want to be able to connect machine learning and data that maybe lives in a data lake to the, the world and support that basic computation that, that people have today. Using the same machinery under the hoods is still out of the same serverless computing ideas, same auto-scaling ideas, same, same work we've been doing in, in prediction serving uh, systems. 
but really trying to make it uh, that much easier. And then one of the things that came out of that was, hey, also, would it be great if you could do some more monitoring, provide better visibility? These workflows are getting really complicated. We're working across teams. How do we address all these other problems that weren't in the research agenda, but are really critical to their success? So that's been the other kind of focus that we've seen in, uh, you know, in launching the company. In terms of sort of the quick differentiation, you mentioned serverless, um, so I'm, I'm assuming that's going to be a guiding principle in the architectures that you continue to, to work on and pilot in the company. When it comes to you know comparing your, your strategy and your ideas around Aqueduct to other existing machine learning workflow type open source technologies, right? I mean, we have Kubeflow, notably. We have Flight out of Lyft, which probably has a little bit less adoption, but seems to be growing nicely. How do you think about Aqueduct? Aqueduct and what you're trying to accomplish in light of, of a couple of those other projects? They're all cool projects. Um, they, they've taken different views of the world. One of the things that we've really tried to focus on is that our users are not major software engineers, data engineers with significant infrastructure background. Our users don't go, oh yes, Kubernetes. I love Kubernetes. Let's see if I can write some more uh, yellow. <laughs> Basically, we're trying to get away from this idea that data delivery of machine learning, that taking data science production requires a, a massive engineering team. These technologies you described, are they're good technologies, but they were in many ways built by engineers at big tech companies, kind of for engineers at big tech companies. And I, I don't think that's what the world needs. We will be having to integrate with Kubernetes. And so making it so our users can can use the, the, the project we have, in fact, the open source project we have today, can plug into Kubernetes behind the scenes, but it, it's trying to hide the complexity of kind of traditional systems ops infrastructure from the the data science team that is that serverless worldview that you know i have a workflow i have python code that i need to run and data i need to connect to the system should be able to figure out how to map that to the underlying infrastructure my company is using. And what's the status of the open source project and the Aqueduct company as we sit here and talk today? We launched the open source project maybe two months ago. It's under very active development. In some sense, we've really focused primarily on the open source effort because we want as the company to make sure that the technology we're delivering solves fundamental problems that people have. And so, yeah, the open source has been our, our primary focus. I mean, as a company, we ultimately do want to make money. And so I'm confident that as the open source project kind of grows, that the ability to host and manage that open source project provide the kind of connections that are hard to manage in the open source, you know, with specialized third-party services, uh, I think uh, Salesforce, maybe having the, the tools to connect these systems that we can't release in the open source, then we can develop as, as part of our commercial offering. But the real, the real goal today is to make sure that we are fundamentally solving this problem for data science teams and building those that infrastructure that you know eliminates the complexity of engineering that exists today. And so, Joey, as we wrap things up, I want to ask you sort of the future vision question because mm -hmm. um, you spent so much time in this world and in academia. You know, both um, sort of starting companies and research, and mm -hmm. and obviously your your contributions to the field are are really appreciated by folks in our community and and even more broadly around the world. Where do you think machine learning systems are headed next in the next say maybe not ten years, but let's try and go a little bit a little bit narrow. Let's say five years. Like what you know, what, what should we be looking at investing? Investing in, in in data council and sort of um, you know creating space at the conference for next. It's a great question, uh, one that, that has been you know the top of mind for me as of late. Uh, we have big research groups at Berkeley that are ongoing. One of the big focuses that I've seen, and in fact inspired by a lot of this this discussion, is kind of the rediscovery of the importance of data. The machine learning world really went deep on the the deep learning world on the on, on model design, and we're starting to see people come back. And, you know, how are we managing the data that goes into these models as we move to these kind of 
foundation or very large models that are often trained by large tech companies, in many cases released to the to the world, how do we use them? And it, it boils down to, you know, maybe fine tuning on small amounts of, of well curated data, being able to identify when you're training these models, the kind of flaws in your data that are baking in these hidden biases. So coming back to our data, coming back to the, the tools that we use to manage large corpus of images of video, of audio, how we filter them, um, how we query them. The feature store has been something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, it's kind of a, a weird offshoot of a need to be able to access a data warehouse from a real-time serving system. So it's a cache of just cleaned data in the data warehouse. But but it's also becoming a place where you know when, when things happen, a user click, that click has to really update features in real time. So there's this need to manage you know changing data in real time as features to our models. So it is folks in the real-time world, but there's some interesting work there in, in the space of feature stores um, to explore. So coming back to data, coming back to not training models on you know massive scale data sets, but fine-tuning them on small amounts of well-curated data. I think we'll see a lot more of that as we move forward. So broad adoption of machine learning. Yeah. Well, definitely appreciate those insights. And um, Joey, we're going to be tracking your research at Berkeley and also the, the progress of Aqueduct. So it's really been great to catch up and, and to chat again. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Zero Prime podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat today with Joey Gonzalez. If you'd like to get in touch with Joey, you can find him on Twitter at ProfJoeyG, and you can find more info on his company, Aqueduct, at aqueducthq.com. If you like hearing from engineer founders on the cutting edge of enterprise startups and developer tools, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next time.